Uh, there was a woman named Sarah. Uh, she went into the office of Martin Thielen, and she just let it all out. There was things happening in her life, and uh, her marriage was under strain. She had a challenging relationship with her daughter. She was under tremendous pressure at work, and so all this built up, and this just came out. And uh, just, just let it all out. And so Thielen, you know, realizing that she was having a kind of a profound and difficult moment, um, just, you know, waited a few minutes. And, and then he asked her, he says, well, what do you want most out of life? And, uh, well, she thought about it for a bit, and she wants to be happy. And after some time processing the question, okay, let, let me just think, why am I experiencing this? She said, I make a lot of money. I'm successful in my profession. People tell me I'm attractive. Yet I'm terribly unhappy. So I want to know, if money, success, and beauty don't make you happy, what does? Now, if I was to ask you what makes someone successful, what would you say? What makes someone successful? So this is a sermon. You're right. It's probably a trick, right? Right, of course. And so let me get a bit more specific. What is success according to our culture And what is success according to uh, Jesus? So what is success according to our culture, so our society, the people around us? And what is success according to uh, Jesus? Because I don't know if you've noticed, but there's actually a lot of competing answers and responses to that question out there. Now, how many sermons do you listen to a week? One? Maybe if you miss a Sunday, you know, you kind of maybe two a month or three a month, maybe. You are listening to sermons, messages about what is good, about what is success, all these things every single day, multiple times. To, uh, the response to the question, you know, what is success? What should we be pursuing in life? Disney has an answer to that. CBC has an answer to that. Fox News has an answer to that. School curriculum has an answer to that. And so the question we need to be asked is, what is shaping my understanding of success? And there's some complicating factors as well because of our modern period. Uh, Several years ago, I picked up a book by an author named Elaine de Bottom, and and this is what he says. He says, there's something called status anxiety, as if we need another kind of anxiety uh, in the world. It's a worry so pernicious as to be capable of ruining extended stretches of our lives, that we are in danger of failing to conform to the ideals of society Success laid down by our society. A worry that we are currently occupying too modest a rung or about to fall to a lower one. This status anxiety is a worry about your status, how you are appearing. Where are you on the ladder of success? Now, what makes one successful? Think of the woman. Is it money? Is it the recognition of your peers? Is it beauty? Is it influence? Is it piling up letters behind your name? Of course, there is that expression, the ladder of success, and it's something that de Bottom uh, references here, the ladder of success. So imagine yourself climbing up a ladder, okay? Climbing up a ladder, and it's leaning up against something, let's say a house, right? Because a ladder leans against something. And you climb up that ladder, and you go into the window at the top of the ladder. Now, what if that ladder was leaning against the wrong house, and what if you had gone into the wrong window in the wrong house? Hmm. Let's explore what Jesus might have to say about success uh, and invite ourselves to consider uh, when it comes to when we're thinking about that, are we taking our lead from Jesus or are we taking our lead from the culture around us? And so uh, we're going to open our scriptures to John chapter 13. If you've got a Bible, you want to open it, I encourage you to do so. And I'm reading from the ESV translation of uh, the Bible. And uh, we've been going through line by line the Gospel of John. 
and we're, we're just going through the stories very systematically, you know, very, very slowly uh, to try to see what's in here. As a reminder, John, this is one of the apostles, one of the intimates of Jesus, as we will find, and I'll explain a bit more about that in a little while. But he was there, he was, he was walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, he had the confidence of Jesus. And so he's there, and right now, kind of where we are, you know, chronologically in the story is we're, we're in the week of Passover leading up to uh, Jesus' death. And before he will be flogged, uh, before he will be whipped, the crown of thorns, torture, crucifixion, resurrection. This is in the week leading up to that. So things are getting intense. Jesus has predicted his own death. Some believe him, some don't. Um, but uh, but all, several groups of people are, are trying to kill him, and so he, there's that. So, so the intensity of things is, is, is really kind of up there. And uh, we begin at chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, we talked about what the hour meant two weeks ago. Before his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so uh, we're coming up on that Passover festival. Recall that that's that annual celebration when uh, the people, the Hebrews, celebrated when God rescued them from slavery in Egypt way long time ago. Remember Moses and the whole thing. Um, and so, so that rescue was an act of God's love of liberation. And so here, Jesus, we keep love, love, love. The word love keeps coming up in this text. So Jesus has come also on this divine mission of love for his people, but to rescue them not from slavery, but from the consequences of sin. So Jesus comes full of love during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So so quick word, during supper, this is a meal during Passover week. Uh, when the devil had already, so we're going to talk about this more shortly, but uh, the devil has influenced Judas uh, to betray Jesus, okay? To betray him. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and it says outer because he also had inner garments, outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped uh, around him. We just need to pause on this because this is a very dramatic act, okay? People are surprised because this seems beneath Jesus. Uh, He is the teacher. He is master. He is Lord, right? So washing feet in the ancient world was specifically a job that a servant or a slave did. And this is the Jesus walking on water, Jesus. This is turning water into wine, Jesus. This is feeding thousands of people, Jesus. He's already done all that, and he starts to wash their feet. So this is kind of messing with their expectations. Like, the whole purpose of the Gospel of John, as we're told in the last chapter, um, sorry, John 21, is that you know, it's, it's to tell us that Jesus is the Messiah and Son of God. So what, why is he doing this? When I was young, remember those Mr. Men books? Little square books, the Mr. Men. Uh, there was one of the ones that, that I remember growing up, and I've read to my kids, Mr. Topsy-Turvy. And Mr. Topsy-Turvy, everything was kind of like just not what you'd expect with Mr. Topsy-Turvy, right? And uh, his curtains were hung, uh, you know, downside up instead of right side down. Uh, instead of saying, good morning, he would walk around saying, morning, good you know, and it really kind of messed with people, right? It's like, so, so I think what's kind of happening here, there's a bit of a topsy-turviness going on with what Jesus is doing. We might use the word countercultural today with this, and it's really kind of messing with, with people's minds a little bit. The, the Messiah is not supposed to be doing these things. Now, if there's 12 disciples, let's say 
he spends four minutes on each set of feet. It's 48 minutes. That's a lot of time for them just to sit and ponder. Like, it's just a line. We just skim across it. But that's a lot of time just to be thinking about just drinking this in. Oh, my goodness. Jesus is doing this for us. Their feet are also dirty. So they're not wearing Nikes. They're not wearing fancy dress shoes. They're not wearing cowboy boots. Uh, They're wearing sandals. That was common for the day. And so what we need to think about is their feet are actually dirty. So this isn't, you know, their feet are actually dirty. Not only that. But think of all the animals that are in the streets of Jerusalem. Uh, So there's animal excrement all over the place. And the population of Jerusalem is swelled. There's a lot of people there because this is the Passover festival. Not only that, but in some parts of the city, not all, some parts of the city, people would have emptied their portable toilets into the streets. And so people are wearing sandals. Okay? So with that in mind, Jesus gets down on his knees and and he goes around and he washes all their feet including the feet of Judas. He's there. Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. And he still washes Judas's feet. Matthew Henry, the Puritan biblical commentator, has a good word here. I wrote it down. The blessed Jesus here washed the feet of a sinner, the worst of sinners, the worst to him, who was at this time contriving to betray him. Wow. Wow. Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him, and he gets down. He's washing his feet. He washes the dust and excrement from between his toes. Wow. How do you treat someone who you think is working against you? Continuing, verse 6, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Right? He's like, this is beneath you. What? What's going on? Verse 7, Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If, you do not, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Okay, so Jesus sets the terms of the relationship. That's what we're supposed to get out of this. Jesus sets the terms of the relationship. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. You know, Peter comes across saying these weird things sometimes. Um, you're like, what, what is going on here? Is this, is this just him being kind of ridiculous? I think really this is this youthful faith and zeal. If, if we have to be washed to have a share with Jesus, to be in a relationship with him, he's like, I'm all in, just wash it all of me. He wants it all. So this is this kind of youthful faith and fervor that he has. Jesus said to him, verse 10, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Now, um, they've probably had a bath, just their feet is dirty. Um, but I think what's here going on is Jesus says fundamentally they are spiritually clean. Uh, later in chapter 15, he will say that his word cleans them. So when he says clean, think holy. They are made holy, but not every one of them. Okay? So we know that we know what, what's coming here. Not every one of you, that's Judas. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, not all of you are clean. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, for you are right, for so I am. 
So teacher and Lord, by the way, this is just another reminder of the divinity and humanity of Jesus. He is teacher. He is also Lord. He is God come to us in human form. And you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example. There it is. An example that you also should do just as I have done to you. All right, so this is uh, the example he tells them the purpose. If Jesus washes feet, we wash feet. If Jesus obeys the scriptures, then Jesus' people obey the scriptures. If Jesus is forgiving, his people are forgiving. If, if Jesus lives a life of pure holiness, his people are to live lives of pure holiness. If Jesus loves his enemy, his people are supposed to love their enemies, right? So this is exemplary what he's doing. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 16, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you, or blessed are you if you uh, do them. And there's a bit, of an, a bit of an echo of the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? You blessed, blessed are, blessed are. And what does it mean blessed by God? It means if you do this, God will favor you. That's what it means to be blessed by God. doesn't mean all of a sudden you're going to, you know, have no bills to pay. You will be favored by God as you go through life in the meaningful footsteps of Jesus. Now, a couple of things I just want to raise here. Some people have wondered, there's a debate, you know, is Jesus talking figuratively or is he talking literally? Uh, actually, uh, something came to mind. There's actually a fear, uh, a modern diagnosis called podophobia, uh, a fear of feet. Uh, so people have the real, you know, anxiety-provoking fear of feet, whether it's their own feet or someone else. So um, uh, maybe some of you fall in that category, or maybe just the idea kind of grosses you out. Um, either way, uh, I think uh, St. Saint, Saint Austin has a good word here. He says, you know, really what's going on is Jesus is teaching humble servanthood. So, you know, if you don't do it with your hands, you should at least do it with your heart. And so we're being told there. So I think we need to note that. Also, we can't help but notice... That Jesus is speaking to the disciples who will all be the future leaders in the church. And so this is a warning to them, saying, hey, if you're going to be a position of authority and influence, and you will be, and you'll train people who will train people all down the line, uh, what's going to happen? Every once in a while, there's going to get ego, which gets in the way. People are going to try to get their own agendas. You want to fix that? Now, this could be pastors. It could be deacons. It could be elders. It could be someone who's leading some sort of group in a church. If, if you want to address those types of, you know, ego or selfish or issues, whatever, do some humble feet washing, and that should deal with that problem. It kind of levels the playing field, reminds us about the love of Jesus, which is our incredible example. Okay, continuing verse 18, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. And here he quotes Psalm 41 verse 9, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So something's going to happen against Jesus. Now, Jesus is taking um, Psalm of David, and maybe this is a reference to Ahithophel. Um, it's hard to be sure, but anyway, he's applying it in a much higher way to his own experience. Verse 19, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he, or that you may believe that I am. So Jesus has foreknowledge. He's not surprised about anything that is going on. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me, Heavenly Father. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Now, this word troubled is very, um, very significant. It's not just a, a light worry. 
uh, one, of the, uh, one of the dictionaries says, you know, being troubled even to the point of shaking. He's so troubled. This is, this is the same word that is used back when he was upset when he saw people weeping and mourning about his friend Lazarus who had died outside the tomb. He is so upset, troubled in his spirit. He testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. Pause. Who is this disciple? It's most likely John, the author of this very gospel. Now, he's not speaking in the first person. Sometimes it was customary to speak in the third person. And so this, this is him, so trusted and close. By the way, he's close to Jesus. You can tell by the narrative. He's probably sitting on his right, which is the place of honor in the ancient world. So he's sitting right there. So trusted and close are they in this relationship. Uh, later, when Jesus has been tortured, so he's been flogged, so much of his skin will have been pulled from his body. There's pools of blood below him, the crown of thorns. He's been beaten, stakes risen. He's up on the cross. He has enough strength to do something. What does he do? He, he asks John to take care of his mother. So trusted was John that Jesus entrusted his own mother to his care in chapter 19. But it says, the one whom Jesus loves. So if John himself is writing this and identifies himself as the one whom Jesus loved, doesn't that sound kind of arrogant? Doesn't that sound kind of, um, oh, look at how good I am. I'm the most loved of the disciples. I don't think so. He spent so much time with Jesus. He's one of the intimates. He trusts him that um, I think that he understood his very identity to be loved by Jesus. He identified himself. This is who I am. My primary, who, my value and worth comes from the fact that I am loved by Jesus. I think that's beautiful. Whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table by Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Who's he talking about? So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, I just need to pause on a few things. So uh, first, first of all, um, earlier we had learned that the devil had influenced Judas to do this. Now we hear that Satan, and Satan, remember, this is the first time this title appears in John's gospel. It means the adversary. And I just want to pause on the fact that, you know, what's going on here is an increased level of influence or possession. And this isn't something we, we talk about very much. It can be uncomfortable to some people. Uh, but I just want to pause and say Satan is real. Um, demonic influence is real. Sin is real. Deception is real. Hell is real. These are real things. Um, Earlier in the year, uh, I, it was a great conversation. I had the interview, chance to interview on the podcast, mine and the church's, uh, John Thompson, and he's the author of the book Deliverance. He's a pastor in Toronto, and uh, they actually have an active deliverance ministry, so actually performing exorcisms. Uh, and it's not like what you see on TV, that's a joke. Um, but real, it's, it's, it's a very intense, spiritual, deliberate, therapeutic process of intervention against the demonic, which has taken root in someone's life. And... Um, he said something that was really good. He said this. Next slide. Do I actually believe what the Bible teaches about how the world functions, or do I dismiss it as ancient and stupid? And I think if we're not careful, this can be our default assumption about spiritual warfare and the reality of, of evil, 
uh, and the, we think, oh, that's just old, ancient, and, and stupid. It's not. And actually, the more you look for it and see it and study it, you see that this is active and alive in our world. And so I just want to pause on that because I think we need to take that seriously. Continuing at verse uh, 28. Now, no, now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or, or that he should give something to the poor. So clearly there's some confusion going on. Je- Jesus hasn't said it very loud, so people don't totally know what's going on. Some confusion, and Judas has the money bag, the purse, right, from which he would steal, as we've previously learned. It's the Passover. People would be generous to the poor, just like we quite often at Christmas are even more generous uh, than at other times. So they're wondering about that. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. Judas immediately went out, and it was night. And um, that's a physical description. It's also a spiritual description. There is an ominous tone to that night, and, and much is made about the contrast between light and darkness uh, in, in, the, in the Gospel of John. And so for the next four and a half chapters, with Judas gone, Jesus will give special, personal, close, intimate teaching uh, with the other 11 disciples, and we will explore that in the weeks uh, to come. So we end our close look at the text there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. So let's return to that thought that we started with success. Where do we take our leads from success? Do we take it from the culture around us or we take it from Jesus? Now, interestingly enough, Jesus never once uses the word success, at least not that we have a record of. So we got to know that. Jesus never once uses the word success. And of course, with him, it's not about being successful, but about being faithful. Okay, it's not about being successful, it's about being faithful. Now, when it comes to our culture, of course, our culture is concerned with different ideas of success. And related to this is something called upward mobility. Okay? Here's the definition of upward mobility. Dictionary.com defines it like this. The movement of an individual, social group, or a class to a position of increased status or power. Right? And so, so many of the values in our culture, in this bigger, better, more culture are related to this kind of upward mobility. We want to say things, that, or we want to do things that, that will make other people think impressive things about us that we might increase our influence and power in the world. There's a book called Blind Spots. Colin Hansen, he's, he's a writer who's out there right now. Um, blind Spots. We said that through life there's, we have different blind spots as Christians. And just like when you're driving and there's you know, the blind spot, right? Um, We have those in our lives as well, and one of them is about success. And here's what he writes. It is better to fail in the eyes of the world than to succeed without the Lord. It's not good. It is better to fail in the eyes of the world than to succeed without the Lord. And so Henry Nouwen um, has coined a phrase which stands in stark contrast to this. It's the title of the sermon. I want us to uh, ponder it for a few minutes, and it's this. Downward mobility. If there is such a thing as upward mobility, then there is also downward mobility. It's the path of humble servanthood. Remember that story about Mr. Topsy Turvy and the Mr. Men books? Remember that? He had his curtains, you know, you know, upside down instead of, you know, downside right or whatever, and he would say, you know, morning good instead of good morning. Well, the thing is, is as the story goes on, what happens is that he leaves town, but other people are still impacted by the kinds of things he said and the kinds of things he did. People start to talk like Mr. Topsy-Turvy. They start to do things like Mr. Topsy-Turvy. And so it is with Jesus. 
after he is no longer physically with us. Here's what he says. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And so this is really about downward mobility. He physically gets down, but of course, He's, he's teaching about something that's, that's really topsy-turvy, countercultural in the world of upward mobility, of, of status, of influence, of success. Hey, look at me. Now, think of the significance of this. Um, because quite often what happens in life is, is we do things uh, based on whether or not we think they'll make us look good. Sometimes we don't do things that we know we should do because they seem beneath us. Consider the case of Jesus, okay? So at the start of John's gospel, we're told that everything is created through him. So he has God come to us in human form. So this Jesus, who's here in human form in the flesh in the gospel of John, this Jesus was the one through whom were created the heavens and the sky and the stars, and that Jesus gets down on his knees. Through Jesus, the oceans were made in all their vast splendor, and he pours water into a basin. This Jesus who, who created human life, men and women and, and, and pupils and, and skin cells, everything else with a beautiful creativity, he gets down on his knees and washes the gunk out of the toes of Judas. This is expressed beautifully and theologically in the book of Philippians chapter 2. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or exploited, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of people, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so this act of humble servanthood is actually um, a foreshadowing of what he does for us on the cross. So I'd like to leave you with this thought that I hope will be helpful to you as you think about the kinds of things you say and the kinds of things you do. It's kind of an understanding of downward mobility. Downward mobility is about striving to do what is good instead of striving to look good. Striving to do what is good as opposed to striving to look good. Jesus was concerned with uh, doing what was good, and it didn't matter what others uh, thought of him, and that's part of the reason why he's so compelling. That's part of the reason why we like him so much. He just, he's like, Jesus standing tall and radiating integrity is a power unto himself of incomparable magnetism. We love him for it. It's so beautiful. And yet, how often do we not do maybe the right thing because we think it's beneath us? or we're slow to serve others or admit that we're wrong or do something else because there's this deep little kind of secret belief in our heart that other people really should be, they should feel blessed to be in our presence. So that's where this understanding of downward mobility can be helpful. Am I striving to do good regardless of what, whether or not I think this is beneath me, regardless of whether or not someone has even done something against me, or am I just trying to look good, puffed up with that sort of sly arrogance? Jesus said, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Friends, downward mobility is about striving to do what is good instead of striving to look good 
Amen.